0: Psalm 64, Psalm of David. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from that noisy crowd of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly. Without fear. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They plot injustice and say, we've devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. But God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin all who see them will shake their heads in scorn. All mankind will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him, and all the upright in heart praise him. Amen. Please be seated. About 10 years ago, uh, on my week of vacation, or one of my weeks of vacation, I rented the series of Rocky movies and watched one every day for the whole week. Um, renting, by the way, is an old practice in which people actually used to leave their house to get movies to watch. Rocky was a small-time boxer who trained in a seedy gym in Philadelphia, And because of a publicity stunt, he had the opportunity to fight against the heavyweight champion who wanted to fight against a local boy. Again, it's a publicity thing. And he fought Rocky with Apollo Creed. And at the end of the fight, it was uh, the victory to Apollo Creed, to the champion, but by a split decision. In Rocky II, they have a rematch. And this time, it's Rocky who wins and becomes heavyweight champion. In the third and the fourth Rocky movies, he faces very significant challenges to his title and one from a fighter from Russia who had actually killed in the ring his previous opponent. In both times, Rocky wins, but he barely wins. But the thread in all of the Rocky movies is this. Rocky's gaining and retaining of the title only happens through battle. To stay on top, he faces constant, even dangerous, threats. And all professional sports, too, involve athletes trying to win a cup, a trophy, a medal, and to unseat the previous champion. I like reading history. And in the not too distant or not too recent months, uh, I've read accounts of Margaret, Margaret d'Anjou and her husband Henry VI in the context of the 15th century War of the Roses, which some of you would know. I read a biography of the Russian Tsar Peter the Great at the turn of the 17th and 18th centuries. And in both of these accounts, indeed a theme of most medieval European royalty, there was near constant intrigue in the courts. Factions seeking to dispose, depose one ruler and install another in their place. Plots to uh, attain rulership and to depose rulers were also common in, among the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, among the emperors of ancient Rome, and common also in the time of the Old Testament kings of Israel, and common for David. After being anointed to the throne of God's people, David spends ten years running for his life, pursued by an increasingly unstable king. David comes to the throne finally only after protracted civil war, During his reign, he faced two large-scale rebellions, and one of them at the hands of his own son. The throne can be a dangerous place. David's emotional reactions to his threats to his rule, many of them he turned into songs, psalms, poems, and we get to read a lot of them. Psalms 60 to 63, which we've looked at in recent weeks, are some of those, and so is Psalm 64 today psalm 64 reflects the very same kind of scenario as he stated in psalm 62 where he says how long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence the only plan to thrust him down from his high position they take pleasure in falsehoods they bless with their mouths but inwardly they curse The difference is that in Psalm 62, which sounds a note of confidence throughout, Psalm 64 starts with a plea from David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers. David styles himself a blameless man, verse 4. And so his plea is that of an innocent man calling for justice. His enemies are numerous, a throng or a crowd. And whatever they're doing, David knows that if they succeed, he loses his life. They, he says, wet their tongues like swords. They aim bitter words like arrows. They shoot from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Maybe it's malicious gossip. Maybe it's the spreading of slander in order to spark a rebellion. Don't know. But it's words. Probably what makes their bitter words especially painful is that these enemies are found within David's own circle. Their evil purposes arise from within the court of the king of Israel. Again, the words of Psalm 62, they bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Their voice is that of loyal subjects and friends, but their plots and plans are treacherous. They're doing their ugly work in secret. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, David says. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, eh, who can see them? will be all right and out of the darkness of their hearts they have left no stone unturned in devising their wicked plan the english standard version very accurate translation says that they have searched for injustice and essentially have found it in their search for injustice they have searched diligently they're not missing anything and therefore they think they have devised a perfect plan Covered all contingencies. This cannot fail. And David realizes the peril that this poses to him, that though blameless, he is in considerable danger. And he turns to the only place he can Hear my voice, O God. Preserve my life, hide me. The suffering of the innocent man is one of the themes of Scripture. You have Joseph in the book of Genesis, Job, Jeremiah, and, of course, Jesus. In all of these, Joseph, Job, Jeremiah, Jesus, David, all of these point ahead to Jesus, the consummate innocent sufferer, our Lord. His enemies were numerous. Almost the whole religious establishment. At one point, even his, the, the people who lived in his home village tried to push him off of a cliff. They, too, acted in secret, seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. Arresting Jesus out of town at midnight, giving him an unlawful midnight trial, bringing him to Pontius Pilate at the crack of dawn, bullying Pilate into condemning Jesus, so that when Jesus was finally led out to die early in the morning, the population of Jerusalem was su- surprised so that there followed Jesus a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Secret. Jesus was betrayed from the inside. When Judas came, one of the twelve, people directed bitter words at him. In his lifetime, he was accused of being both demonic and insane. On the cross, passersby derided him and wagged their heads at him, priests uh, priests and scribes scoffed at him. The thieves who were crucified with him also reviled him. Have you ever shaken your head at somebody in disbelief? Some horror, some atrocity? you just can't believe that happened. What a foolish decision! How can the world be like this? You wag your head at what is going on Jesus. Pleaded with God to preserve his life when in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, If possible, please let this cup pass from me. And even after his death, without the intent of being bitter, none of the, nonetheless false words have been spoken against him. Eh, he's not really God. Well, he wasn't really human. He's just an angel. He's merely a good teacher. He's not been raised from the dead. Maybe he never even existed. False words, words like arrows, words of untruth directed at the innocent man, Jesus. If ever there was an innocent sufferer, it was our Lord Jesus. But shades of uh, innocent suffering, they show up in many lives and in all of our lives. Some of you have lived in wartime, found yourselves conscripted for duty not volunteering. You have suffered because someone else made you suffer. Others have found yourself in situations of atrocity and of danger that anyone under 50 really cannot begin to understand. That kind of suffering is not reality for most of us, but almost everybody has felt unjustly treated. Spouses that wound, friendships that end badly, unfair treatment at work, And it's especially painful when this unjust unjust treatment happens at the hands of someone that you trusted. And apart from being clubbed from behind with a baseball bat or outright robbed, most of the injuries that we suffer come by by words. I have hurt others with my words many times. Maybe you have had unjust and deceitful words spoken against you, either to your face or, worse, to somebody else about you when you weren't there. You've had motives and character called into question. You've had accusations made. You have felt misunderstood. You have felt betrayed. And sticks and stones do break bones, but names and words can hurt all the more. Words spoken in anger can do so much damage. Bones heal. Word wounds may not. Words like like swords. Bitter words like arrows shot at you suddenly and from ambush. So what do you do? Who do you entrust your case to? I entrust it to myself. I'll seek cover and I'll shoot back. I'll speak defensively. I'll comment to other people about the unfairness of that person. David entrusted his case to God. Hear my voice, oh God. And God heard. And God acted in David's defense. And God fights fire with fire. Look at what God does. He shoots his arrow at them. That is, he aims his word at their destruction. The Bible makes links between God's word and his breath all the time. The scripture, or God's word, 2 Timothy says that God has breathed out, it is inspired by God. Well here, God's word is issued for destruction. Isaiah 11, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of lips shall he slay the wicked. Thessalonians, the lawless one whom the Lord Jesus shall kill with the breath of his mouth. Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse is called the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, includes these words about Satan, the great enemy of God's people. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. What is the agent of Satan's doom? Is it the mighty army of the angels of God? Is it the thunder and lightning of all God's fury? His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. A word of judgment from the mouth of God. A bitter arrow, spoken, sent. And judgment takes place. Just as the word of God has Genesis 1's power to create, so can his word judge and destroy. And here in Psalm 64, God lets fly an arrow, a bitter word against David's enemies. And again, as their arrows had been fired from ambush, so this arrow of God is unexpected and they are wounded suddenly. And ironically, this agent by which God's word of judgment comes to them is their own words. They're brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. When police arrest somebody, they read him his rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you as evidence in a court of law. Well, for David, his enemies have spoken words that are self-incriminating. And so God's word of judgment is the turning of their own words onto themselves. They have condemned themselves by what they have done. As you have said about David, so let it be done unto you. Self-condemnation. And all who see them wag their heads, verse 8, or shake their heads. David was always rescued. No matter what happened, no matter the situation, no matter his energy, uh, his enemies, God always rescued David. And David died a, at an old age, sitting on the throne of God's people. But that kind of rescue, though, as we know, is not always how God does it. Joseph in Egypt was elevated to a near dictatorship, but Job... Restored to wealth and to prominence never got his kids back. What do you think is the greater pain? Jeremiah remained a prisoner. Even when given his freedom by the Babylonians, he was kidnapped and brought against his will by his own people to Egypt. And Jesus, of course, died. Was he rescued? Father, if there be any way, let this cup of suffering pass from me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear my voice, O God, preserve my life. And he dies. What's that about? We read these interesting words in the book of Hebrews concerning Jesus, his praying and his death. The Bible says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The one who was able to save Jesus from his death heard Jesus' prayers, and Jesus died. Did God, in fact, rescue Jesus from death? Well, we as Christians know that he did, not by preventing him from entering death, as it were, but God rescued Jesus by pulling him out of death. I always phrase it uh, this way, Jesus came out the other side, and having died once, as it is appointed for everyone to do, he now lives, and death no longer has any claim to him, no hold on him, nor any power over him. God heard Jesus' prayers, and God rescued him from death. So by his resurrection, Jesus was declared with power to be God's son, was exalted to the highest place, and given the very name of God, which is above every name. And one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is rescued. He is exalted. But what about you? What about me? God may rescue you in the way that you want, here and now. The truth will out. You will be vindicated. Those who have unfairly turned against you will be revealed for what they are. But he may not. There are times, maybe more often than not, when the hurt continues and no one will ever know the wrong done to you. Is there then another kind of rescuing? Will they hear my voice actually be heard? Yes, it will be heard. It has been heard. And God will bring a day when the setting right of all things will be brought about. No wrong will go unaddressed. And the hard thing for us is to let things remain until that day. Until God pays back vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, he says. And in the meantime, to love our enemies. For on the day of judgment, God's word says, everyone will give an account for every careless word that they have spoken, every stab, every arrow. And God in his perfect justice will address it all, that no wrong goes unnoticed, no wrong is gotten away with, every wrong done against you, and every wrong done by you. For I cannot think that I will receive justice for the wrongs committed against me but that the wrongs that I've committed against others will not be dealt with. I stand judged on that day, too, with all of you. I can't count how many sins of this nature I have committed. In high school, my gross sin against my French teacher, if I told you what our class did to him with our words, I'm appalled at it to this day me and a group of friends telling another friend how much we didn't like her and in fact never had, sharing in the gossip of the workplace, speaking rebelliously to my parents, insulting them to others in their absence. I have said so many words like arrows and swords. So many. Almost more than encouraging words, I think, sometimes. And I know we all have. And so here's the surprise of the psalm. We've all been unjustly wronged on at least one occasion, and we identify with David in this psalm. But the truth is that in this psalm, the characters that we most identify with are the conspirators. We're the rebels. We're the stabbers in the back. And the king is the king of God's people who has always been the king of God's people. Has not everyone rebelled against the Lord of heaven and earth? Haven't we chosen to be our own Lord instead of living under the good lordship of him who alone is Lord? And even us who are friends of God, haven't we even now said these arrow words, if not with our tongues, by our actions? Haven't we said, but I want, or just this once? or no, I won't, or me first. Maybe we've articulated them. We've certainly lived them. I certainly have. We've indicated to the Lord that at one time or another, we wanted to sit on the throne in his place. I stand self-condemned, and we are all condemned. I know that for me to offer a plea of not guilty is out of the question. It's silly, It's stupid, it's unwise, it's heinous. I think we all know it. So people who have said Jesus was just a great teacher, but he was not God. Others who have said, I don't think there is a God. Others who have said, I think there's a God, but he's got nothing to do with me. Others who have said, there may be a God, but he's unjust, he's unfair, he's like an angry father. He's just looking for an excuse to squash me like a bug. He's vicious. So people everywhere, including us, have spoken against God's character and we've acted against his perfection. We have shot our arrows at him. So what is to be done? And so comes the even greater surprise. God, the divine son of God, the eternal father, sends the king into the midst of his enemies who continue to shoot our arrows, who continue to stab with our words and to nail to our crosses. We discover that when God called Jesus to submit to the arrows of people and to die, Jesus was actually submitting to the will of the Father. That the arrows of the people were the arrows of God. God shoots his arrow not at the traitors, but at the innocent one. And only later do we discover what that meant, that the death of the righteous one is the judgment due the unrighteous, that the king gives his life for the rebel, and the doors of the dungeon are flung open. Let me tell you the truth. Since the first disobedience of Adam and Eve, all of us since have made that same choice. I am Lord, and you are not. And as a consequence, all of us have lived both in separation from God and deserving of the judgment of God against our crimes that we've committed against him. But God is love and his judgment is an expression of his love. He's so committed to the welfare of those whom he loves that he will, he must, save them from that which destroys. Save them from the separation from him without which there can be no fullness of life. Save them from the righteous judgment without which justice could never have been served. So God is rich in mercy. How can he ensure that there is retribution for all wrong? And yet save at the same time the wrongdoer whom he loves so deeply. Well, he gives of himself. His son, part of his divine self, he gives that whoever whoever believes may not perish, but may live. There are only two ways that sin will ever be atoned for. You might pay for it. And since the the weight of our crimes against God is infinite, because he is infinitely righteous, so the judgment that falls on us will be infinite. Or you can say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He is Lord. The throne of my heart is for him and him alone to sit upon. And you must choose. The God who loves you, the God who reigns, the one under whose lordship you can truly live fully, or the continued life of the rebel, moving towards the inevitable end that a rebel rightly deserves. For Jesus is the king, he is the champion, and no intrigue, no attack will ever threaten his rule. Have you ever been betrayed by someone? Wronged, felt the sword of that hurt, the arrows of unjust words spoken by someone you trust. Hear my voice, O God. It is heard. Your wrong will be redressed. No one who has ever sinned against you will escape justice for that sin. Yours is simply to trust and to wait. The innocent who has been unjustly treated. Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let the upright in heart rejoice. But what of your rebellion? What of your treason against the king? There too, yours is simply to trust that the atonement for your sin has been made by Jesus and to say to him, then you are my king. You are the king. And to trust that the righteousness of Jesus is now credited to your account and God relates to us on that basis. You are righteous. And there too, and maybe especially there, let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let the upright in heart rejoice. The rebel has been saved. Reconciled to the king who gave his life to bring us to himself. Trust and rejoice. Amen. Thank you, Lord, the king, for rescuing us where we should have been pierced with your arrows and judged to eternal judgment and death by the sword of your word but your word has rescued you have spoken justice and love to us for which we can never thank you enough but for which we thank you now with as much as we have to offer we bless you and offer our hearts again place them again under your lordship in the name of Jesus the King. Amen.